0: This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories, they're all worth listening to, <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. It may be literally ancient history, but there's just something about the Roman Empire that never seems to get old. From pop culture to politics, the Romans never seem far away. In fact... Ancient Rome has even been trending on TikTok lately. We'll get to that in a sec. And my next guest can take some credit for another generation's fascination with this history. Mary Beard is one of the world's best known living classicists. Between her BBC documentaries and best selling books, Mary's got a gift for bringing the reality of everyday Romans to life. In her latest book, she puts the focus on the emperors, all of them. It's called Emperor of Rome, ruling the ancient Roman world. Mary Beard, good morning. And good morning to you. Or maybe I should say Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, Mary Beard.
1: I I think we won't use the word dame. (laughs) Sounds like a pantomime, doesn't it? And then you've got the British Empire as well. So uh, um, let's stick to Mary.
0: (laughs) Okay, we'll stick with Mary. I I will just say I think you're the first dame we've had on the show. But uh, Mary's good for me, too. Um, I have to start by asking about this TikTok thing thing Mm -hmm. for people are like what are you talking about and why in god's name are you gonna ask mary beard about tiktok here we go there is this trend that's been happening over the last number of weeks it began with one couple but is really extended where women ask their male partners or family or friends how often they think about the roman empire I, i gather you have seen this thing Yes, I have. Yes. Okay. Yes. What, do you, what do you make of this? Because the surprising thing is like how often a lot of guys think about the Roman Empire. I did this with my husband. He was like, yeah, like at least like once every couple of days, which I was like, wait, what? So... <laughs>
1: When you heard about this, what do you think? Well, to start with, I thought, my goodness me, my publishers have been absolutely brilliant. They've set this great publicity (laughs) campaign up. And (laughs) and it's all down to them. Um, When I asked them whether they've got anything to do with this TikTok trend, they denied it. So I had to take it for real. And I think it's extremely interesting. My job is, as it were, getting people interested in the Romans. And so... I will start with anything. And if I find a guy who says he thinks about the Roman Empire seven times a day, as some of them do, uh, I am quite happy to say, oh, that's fine. That's a good place to build. <laughs> and I will show you it's more interesting even than you imagine. So, so, so I'm, quite, I'm quite pleased with it. But I'm still puzzled about why. Mm. I, I think the only answer I've got, and it's a very bland one, is that, The Roman Empire is a kind of safe space for fantasising about being macho, you know, because it's such a long time ago. And I'm sure these guys are thinking not about the slaves or the women or the ordinary people. They're thinking about the emperors and the generals. And it gives a little kind of, well, safe space for pretending to enjoy or really enjoying a a certain sort of machismo that they think Mm. goes with the Romans. Now, I I want to say, look, it's more complicated than that. But I think that's it. I mean, you, you know, it would be absolutely impossible to say that you thought about, you know, European dictators or the Third Reich three times a day. That would be very suspicious to say the least but the romans are kind of so long ago uh and everybody if they want if they're male can imagine that they put on their little military skirts or their togas and they become men in Mm. a in a very old-fashioned way and I, i think that that has got something to do with it
0: yeah, and maybe in a very limited way, right? Because as you uh, w- well know, it, it goes much deeper than skirts and military skirts and so on.
1: <laughs> it really does. but I, I, uh, And I think that it, it is part of the way we engage with the past in a very partial way. You know, that that you know, If you ask students, who would you imagine being in the Roman world? Men or women, they always imagine themselves at the very top of Roman society. You know, it gives us, it's kind of upward social mobility in the mind. And you say, look, people I like ask, you know, why didn't you imagine yourself as the slave girl cleaning the baths, you know, or the carpenter trying to make his living in the Roman world? But that's not what fantasy does. Mm-hmm. Fantasy lets you be... Uh, top of the tree and the big wigs. Partly, I think, to cut out the nasty bits. And one of the things we have to do in history is remember to put the nasty bits back in um, as well as the more complicated bits and the mm-hmm. bits about other people. So, so I think the, the blokes thinking about being Roman is is a good start for thinking more interestingly about being Roman. Thinking about ancient Rome
0: is one thing. Learning about it is another. And I think there's a portion of people out there, Mary Beard, that find Roman history intimidating, maybe because there is so much history, so many names. Yeah, what do uh, you say when someone says, Mary, I just can't, so many names, so yeah, many names? Yes, no.
1: I, I know that particularly when it comes to the Roman Empire and the rule of the, the of the empress, you know, we know some of their names. We know Claudius because of Robert Graves' I, Claudius, and most people have heard of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. But They're very, very put off because, not unreasonably, they imagine that in order to understand this period of of history, in order to understand the Romans, you've got to know the names of all these damn rulers. You've got to know when they ruled, what order it was, and so forth. And one of the things I was wanting to do in my book is to say, you don't, actually. Most Romans didn't know uh, the order in which their emperors had come. And if you say, well, I haven't heard of the emperor Geta, then I can promise you that most Romans wouldn't have heard of him either. Don't worry about that kind of thing. But what we can explore, uh, and we don't need to know all those micro details, is we can explore what emperors, as a kind of group, as a class, as a job description, what they were like, You know what they ate, where they went, who they slept with, where they lived. And it doesn't matter all that much whether they were, you know, Claudius or Antoninus Pius.
0: So broad strokes, Mary Beard, give me
1: a sense of emperorship. I think it's an extremely elusive one because it comes in many, many different forms. And one of the things that Romans thought about when they thought about emperors was they thought about people who were larger than life. Uh, um, so they had, you know, more sex and better sex, and more food and more elaborate food, and they lived in bigger houses than anybody else. It's a bit in the line of celebrity gossip now. I think that, you know, what what all the or royal gossip, you know, the Queen's corgis ate out of silver dishes. Right? So there's a there's a fantasy about power and riches. Equally, and I think this is more surprising to people, there is part truth and part fantasy in the idea that the Roman emperor, part of his brand was that he should be accessible to everybody. Hmm. It's a wonderful story told about the Emperor Hadrian, but also about other emperors. He's going uh, through the countryside and a, an old peasant lady comes up to him and says, excuse me, Emperor, I've got a question for you. And... He turns around and says, terribly sorry, haven't got the time. <laughs> and she says, if you haven't got the time for me, you haven't got the time to be emperor. <laughs> we tend to forget this, this side of the Roman emperor. But the Roman emperor is a pen pusher. He's an administrator. He's a problem solver. And he probably spends an awful lot more time um, doing his correspondence and making legal judgments than he ever spends having rather elaborate sex in swimming pools. (laughs) There are different ways of imagining him. But before we get too carried away about all the lurid stuff, and I do talk about the lurid stuff in the book, we have to put back into that the emperor as an admin guy and some of them oh so boring mary so so
0: administrative
1: it is i I think it's (laughs) actually fascinating i mean and you know they you can you can see the modern ruler in this sometimes because both julius caesar and marcus aurelius a later emperor um they get terribly bad press because they go to the races the big form of popular entertainment in rome and they take their letters to answer while they're at the races. And the crowd gets really angry because it looks as if they're not taking popular entertainment seriously. And you suddenly see that this is exactly like if, say, um, Prince William went to a football match and was caught texting while the goal was being scored. You know, people would be saying, he doesn't really take football seriously. He doesn't take us seriously. So it is the source of controversy in Rome, as as well as being, I think, slightly reassuring. You know, these guys um, sat down with their pens and they got up early and they answered letters. (laughs) Yeah, I think people would think expect us to talk about Nero,
0: but I'm going to leave Nero aside because I think for me, one of the most fascinating um, emperors that you write about in this book, someone I'd never heard of, fairly obscure. Elagopolis. Do (laughs) I say that right? Pretty well.
1: I say Elagopolis, but you're probably more correct.
0: Elagopolis. No, you're probably more correct. Colourful character. And I think it's worth just talking about him for a minute, uh, Mary Beard.
1: Just give us a thumbnail sketch of him. he's, He's a teenage emperor who originates in Syria. Many Roman emperors Um, originate outside Rome and he rules for four years in the early third century CE uh, before he's assassinated and I use him as a kind of as the poster boy in a way at the start of the book because you know if you think that Nero is extreme uh, Nero is a pussycat compared with what we're told about Elagabalus And so what I do is I dive straight in to some of the most unbelievable, but also highly coloured stories about what an emperor could do. I mean, Elagabalus has got it, got everything. I mean, he invites his friends to dinner one day and he's very generous and he showers them at the end of the evening with rose petals but so many rose petals that they smother and die.
0: Right? Oh am um, sorry, I don't even mean to snort. I, was, I know, I've read this. So, any, so many rose petals that you kill your guests.
1: Yes, that's right. And he has all, I mean, that's you in, in some ways the worst because it really is first degree murder. But um, uh, on other occasions, he has other little kind of humiliating tactics for dinner. Um, he, for example, serves the lower-ranking guests, sometimes with fake food, not real food, so that if you're sort of at the bottom of the table, you get a wax model of a pear while people at the top are eating the fruit nicely. And he also, he, he probably invents the whoopee cushion um, because he, or, or, again, on one occasion he sits uh, some of his guests, on inflatable cushions. And during the evening, he has the air let out of the cushions so that in the end, they are lying on the floor. Well, all these stories are just wonderful fantasies about uh, imperial excess, honestly. To start with, I, I kind of thought, look, if you're writing a serious history, you just have to get rid of those. Some of them may be... Exaggerations, but you know, none of them are literally true. I very much doubt. Yeah. Um, they're told to blacken the name of Elagabalus, and I suppose my first uh, attempts at writing uh, writing the book was to, to try to keep those stories at bay. I then saw two things. You know, one is it made it a very boring history. Uh, secondly, though. I think I was missing the point of these anecdotes. And I think the kind of stories that we tell about people in power, even if they're not true, are really important. They're important about ourselves, but they're also important about how people feel about the nature of autocracy. And I think that that story about Elagabalus and the rose petals is a great case in point, actually, because uh, I think that... What it's saying, apart from it being a slightly chilling, if almost humorous joke, what it's saying is you have to be very careful of empress because when the emperor is being apparently his most generous, he can still kill you then. So the generosity of the emperor is actually a killing generosity. Hmm. Now, If you put it in those terms, those anecdotes then seem to be quite important in thinking about fear, power, corruption, and the effect of living, what it's like to live under uh, an autocratic monarchy.
0: And Mary, you write about this, of of course, because the the emperors, there was this one-man rule and autocracy. It went on for centuries. Mm. Was there talk of people rising
1: up, like, let's overthrow the emperor? There's quite a lot of talk about people wanting to get rid of the emperor who's on the throne at the moment. Right? Um, there is almost no talk of wanting to get rid of the system of one-man rule. Hmm. So there are, you know, a lot of people think, I'd rather have a different person on the throne than this one. There's very, very little trace of, to the first few decades of autocracy, of anyone saying, I don't think the autocratic system is... Right. Why do you think that is? That's a big question. But I I think that what you can see is that, and I think it's a lesson here for us, honestly, you can see that there's a huge tendency for people to go along with it and to make the best of it. And although I think that we're looking all the time for the dissidents, for the people who will speak up against this system. And although we like to imagine, I think it's a vain imagining, that if we'd been there, we would have objected. Actually, if you look through all this, people go along with it. They make a deal with dictatorship. And I I think that, you know, to be honest, that's what keeps autocratic regimes in power even now. It's Okay, it's partly violence, it's partly the bloodstained corridors of power. But what sustains and underpins this kind of one man rule, wherever we are, is not only violence, it's that people actually make the best of it, go along with it, and don't object. You know, they don't like individual emperors, and when an emperor dies or is got rid of, they're very happy then to put their head above the parapet and say, oh, I knew he was a rotten thing all along. But actually, for most of the time, they just make do. And I think in some ways, the Roman Empire is a bit of a warning about making do, because that's what that's what keeps it going.
0: If you're just joining us here on The Sunday Magazine, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with a celebrated historian and classicist, Mary Beard. Her latest book is called Emperor of Rome. When we speak of the Roman Empire, we get a a, a certain view of women in that time or no view of all. How how do the women feature in these stories of the emperors you're
1: telling? Um, Well, sometimes quite prominently. And I think it's, it's true that for a few women in the imperial court, the emperor's wives or the emperor's mistresses, they probably did have more practical power than any women in Rome had ever had before. For the simple reason that they were close to the emperor. Uh, they could uh, whisper in his ear. That's why some slaves appeared to have power, appeared, I think we should underline, um, in the Roman Empire, because they were close to the emperor. They they shaved him in the morning or they put his shoes on and they could bend his ear. And that is unofficial vaccines power of a sort. But both slaves and women were not, I think, really Powerful. Though I think there is one very strong strand, both in modern history writing of the Roman Empire, but also in some ancient history writing, which suggests that the women in particular um, had a big policy role here, that they were manipulating and scheming at the highest level of political decision making. The classic Okay, so that would be Augustus's wife, Livia, who, when Augustus chose his heirs, is reputed to, is supposed to have, bumped each heir off with poison as they went until the only man left standing was her own son by her first marriage, the Emperor Tiberius. And that's been a very common theme in talking about particularly the first Few reigns of the empire, Uh, familiar from Robert Graves' I Claudius, as well as from other kinds of history writing. And it's not necessarily, not necessarily wrong, but for me, it has all the sniff of absolute traditional misogyny about it. You know, that when we are thinking about why the men in control make the decisions that they do, particularly when they seem odd. Or when difficult and inconvenient things happen after them, it is extremely easy to say, Do you know why it happened like that? It was because of a woman. It's absolutely classic, blame the woman hmm. approach to history writing, which we still see going on. I mean, at the moment in the UK, um, we're having an inquiry about our response to COVID. And and in the last week or so, it's been particularly whether Boris Johnson did or did not get it right. Um, What comes out there? The person who was really telling him what to do was Carrie Johnson. Hmm, His wife, yeah. Yeah, I have no idea whether Mrs Johnson was influential or not, But I sure know that that's a completely standard, cliched, stereotypical version of what you say about women in power. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? Yeah, exactly. exactly, And that's why looking at this can be very interesting because it doesn't give you, I think Roman history doesn't provide simple parallels. I mean, people um, always used to ring me up when President Trump was in power and would say, what Roman Empire, emperor is President Trump most like? And in the end, I just used to say Elagabalus. Um, not because I thought he was really, actually. I don't know, he's half as bad as Elagabalus was written up to be, you know, even Trump. Um, but I thought, oh, well, at least they'll never have heard of Elagabalus so they'll have to go and look him up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and I don't. Th- I just don't think that one-to-one equivalence, you know, ever, ever helps. Mm. But I think what does help is thinking about... Uh, How you see the way we talk about things replicated with certain differences 2,000 years ago. I think it helps you see what's going on now as well as what's going on then.
0: We are, to that point, um, in our country and yours, um, in many, many places around the world, reevaluating our history, our histories, I should say. And I heard that you once said that history is always moving and we're changing the questions and it's changing the answers. Why is it important for us to think about history in these ways?
1: Well, I'm going to quote the excellent Spanish novelist um, Antonio Munoz Molina. I once did a, a discussion with him and we were asked very much that same question. What he said, and I thought absolutely spot on right, he said, look, you could say we can't learn from history, but... History's all we've got to learn from, so we've really got to try. And I think that that, for me, now has become the bottom line. But it doesn't stay the same, you know. The people who are making history are as much us as the people we're studying. Um, we're putting new questions and different questions to them. And they are helping us by that kind of conversation with a version of the past. We are enabled to see different things both in their world and in our world. And I've thought that very strongly um, about the history of women, for example. I mean, when I when I was a student, um, you know, back in the 1970s women hardly featured in ancient history. Uh, And that's dramatically changed in my lifetime, as we've seen that you couldn't possibly want to understand any culture without understanding women as well as men. That has changed the way ancient history looks, when we teach it and when we read about it. But it's also sensitised us to the ways that we understand our own version of women and power. You know, the idea that we do see still women as the schemers behind the throne, um, that we don't actually have a way very easily of thinking about an independently powerful woman, even though um, countries have had queens and female prime ministers and presidents. Um, There's still a lot of work to be done about imagining women being authoritative and powerful. And for me, and I think for many people, actually seeing the origins of, in a way, the silencing of women in antiquity has been a very useful help to thinking about that. And Mm -hmm. history doesn't have the answers, but it can help us think differently about ourselves
0: after getting inside the head of what it was really like to be
1: a Roman emperor, is this a job you would have wanted? (laughs) Uh, No. I mean, I think that after (laughs) spending quite a long time working on these guys, I think that I've come to hate the system of one-man rule even more than I did before. But at the same time, I've come to feel just a bit sorry for the individual's concern. You know, you're an ordinary bloke. You're not necessarily that smart. And you've got to think of yourself as the ruler of the known world. You've got to believe in yourself as emperor. You've got to do the job. You've got to act the part. And not very many of them succeed. Job from hell.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And on that, Mary... (laughs) I want to say thank you very much. We appreciate the work you do, the job you do um, mm-hmm. of just making all of this so fascinating and, and worthy of our, our time mm-hmm. and understanding. Appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's historian Mary Beard, who has a new book out. It is called Emperor of Rome. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash sunday. I'm Pia Chattapaddi. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC podcasts, go to CBC.ca/podcasts.